All right, good morning. Welcome to Grace Point Church Virtual Church. Um, we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 27, and we'll work into chapter 12, uh, verse 12. Uh, again, a huge uh, thank you to Cross Connection Church for allowing us to use their facilities and uh, to put this uh, sermon online for us, and to Don and Isaac for taking time off work to lead us in worship uh, this morning. Last week, there was a bit of awkwardness in this, just preaching to Isaac over here and, and Nick and, and an empty room. But this week, it's a little bit more relaxed since I know what's going on. Uh, you all are sitting in your living room uh, in your pajamas with your snacks and drinks and, and kids doing somersaults through the living room. So uh, it's, it's not as stressful this week because I know I'm just there in your living rooms. And so I'd encourage you to, to grab your coffee, grab your soda or a soda or whatever you drink this early in the morning and uh, grab your Bibles and we'll, we'll dig into the study. Uh, with that, let's pray and we'll get into our text. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we are uh, grateful, Lord, for the opportunity that we have uh, to gather now, even remotely. Uh, we ask, God, that you would... Uh, clear our minds of any distractors, um, any worries and concerns that we have uh, in our lives. Help us to focus, Lord, on you and your word. We ask that your spirit would lead us now as we work our way through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. So in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, we read, They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you will answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another and that one they killed and so with many others beating some and killing others he had one more to send a beloved son he sent him last of all to them saying they will respect my son but those vine growers said to one another this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against him, against them. And so they left him and went away. With that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word again. Lord, we ask that you would guide us as we work our way through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week's text, if we gave it a title, it could be summarized uh, with the phrase, God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. Um, if we were to look at this week's passage, the, the, the title that I sort of see taking from the old uh, 1977 song of The Clash, uh, I fought the law and the Lord won, making a slight twist to it. Uh, this, this whole passage is dealing with the authority of Jesus. Um, and thinking about authority, it's, it's crazy to me to think that this is our third Sunday without a corporate worship service. Um, and sort of reflecting on the last three weeks, going back three weeks ago, uh, as things began to change on us and beginning to see that the reality that corporate worship might be outlawed for the sake of uh, this period to help get a handle on the coronavirus, um, it, it, was, it was overwhelming. It was more than I could possibly imagine uh, or even know how to, to navigate. Um, I remember um, going around through the leadership team and sort of extended leadership of our body sort of asking them uh, what did they think. And, and there was so much discussion about uh, who, who's got the authority to make this decision. Is it the governor of the state? Is it our president? Is it our local leaders? Um, what's the right thing to do? What does God have to say about it? And, and it, was, it, it wasn't a decision that came lightly or easily. And and, and sort of in increments, we, we reached the conclusion that we needed uh, to obey the desire of the government for the sake of, of the greater good of our community. Um, as these three weeks have gone on, and we have, we have no idea how, how many more weeks are going to go forward, um, within me there's this desire, and I've heard it from people, that we... We're just longing for the day and imagine that the day will come that they'll say, hey, we're allowed to gather together and you can worship in groups. You can meet in the restaurants. You can do all of these things. And regardless of the day, within my heart, I'd be like, let's just grab everybody together and have a worship service regardless of the day of the week. But the reality is, is I know that as we enter back in, it will likely come with sort of uh, conflicting opinions and conflicting authorities. We may see the president say something on a national level. We may see our governor say something at a state level. And we may see the San Diego County um, authorities say something that all sort of um, don't agree with one another. And so I know right now that it won't be an easy call to make. And we will as we enter back into worshiping again, we will have to wrestle with all of the things that we wrestled with in shutting down the service. Namely, 
who has the authority in this matter? Uh, is it God that has authority, which of course we agree with, but God has told us to submit to the local authorities that are over us. And then we have to seek wisdom. And so I know I'm already sort of not dreading, I'm longing for the day for us to gather, but also acknowledging that there's going to be this, this, this period where we grapple with which Sunday do we come back. And so as we look at this passage, I see the religious leaders challenging the authority of Jesus and, and what is he doing and who gives him the authority to do the things that he's doing. Um, with that, let's look at verse 27. And so we begin with right away that they came again to Jerusalem, following the sort of the, the chronological order of the Passion Week, following the, the steps of where they're going back and forth uh, between. Most seem to think that this was Tuesday morning that we're dealing with here in this section. If you'll, I have to turn back, but if you go back in your Bibles to verse 1 uh, to follow the geographical flow, in verse 1, we see that they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Uh, this is as they're getting ready to have the triumphal entry with the colt. This was our last Sunday passage that we had corporately together. Uh, suddenly now it's so much sweeter not having gathered for three weeks. Uh, shooting down to verse 11, we see that Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple and looking around at everything... He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So they make it to Jerusalem. They make it into the temple, and then they depart. And then on the next day, verse 12, uh, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And we, we come to the, the fig story, which we saw last week. Uh, moving into verse 15, then they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus has... Uh, sort of the scene in the temple where he's kicking over table or kicking over tables, knocking over chairs, stopping people that are trading back and forth uh, within the temple. And then in verse 19, we're told that when evening came, they went out of the city um, down in verse 27, uh, where we are today after the incident with the, the fig. Remember, it was morning time. They were on their way back to the temple between verses 20 or verses 19 through 26. This is where they're making their way to the temple. Peter sees the fig tree and he says, hey, Jesus, look at that. That tree you cursed is dead completely and totally. And Jesus begins uh, to explain this lesson of the fig tree in light of the temple and what they were going through. And this uh, teaching of the fig tree very much bleeds in uh, to the rest of the chapter and what we are dealing with today. The fig tree showed leaves. It should have had fruit on it or, uh, you know, it wasn't the time for the season, but it gave the sort of the appearance that there was fruit available, but there was nothing available like the temple. It was big. It was powerful. It was uh, it, it had all of the the handwriting of Herod, who was this world renowned builder. Still to this day, we look at his buildings and are in awe of it. And yet in, in light of all of that glory, it was dead on the inside. And so after Jesus uh, kicks over the tables, they depart, they leave. And now, verse 27, it's, it's Tuesday morning. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he's walking into the temple, he's uh, immediately stopped. We're told he's met by the chief priest, the scribes, the elders. They all come to him, and they're going to challenge him. So this is the Sanhedrin. This, uh, These are the... The, the big guns of the authority. 
Um, they carried the Jewish executive, legislative, and judicial uh, power. They, they held all of the strings for how the Jewish people lived and worshipped and conducted life. And so here they stopped Jesus. And they're not going to have another day of, of what he had done the previous day. And so they asked him, they began saying to him in verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And so they're asking him, what's the nature of his authority? What is the source of his authority? Uh, the things that they're referring to is the previous day when he kicked over those tables, when he flipped over the chairs, when he stopped the people that were uh, selling merchandise within the temple grounds, this place that was supposed to be a house of prayer. He had interrupted their lives. He had disrupted um, their, their flow of, of services and what they were doing, and they're not going to have it again today. It's interesting to me that they don't... Um, they don't question the authority that Jesus had. They simply want to know the source of the authority. Uh, many of you know I've talked over the years, in the last three or four years, about my dad going into the early stages of Alzheimer's. And as he progresses, um, four years ago or so, that I had to sort of intervene and take over responsibility for the affairs of my dad. And, and so it's, it's been this, this journey but when I, when I read this question or these questions that they're asking Jesus, it reminds me of whenever I take my dad to the doctor or I call in to make an appointment or change an appointment. They always sort of ask, okay, now who are you? And I say, well, I'm Gunnar Hansen. And they say, well, this is for Richard Hansen. And I said, I know, I'm in, I'm in the file. Can you just, just pull up the computer and look in there? And so I can always hear the person on the phone kind of clicking through the computer. And she's like, oh, okay, I see here that we have that you're his medical power of attorney, that you have authority uh, to, to know about his medical stuff and to make these decisions. And so they, they are, they're coming to Jesus. I don't think, uh, well, I, I'm pretty certain that, that they're not coming to him with a, with a humble heart, uh, authenticating his authority, seeking to follow and worship and learn from him. They're coming to try to stumble him. They're coming to him, trying to find an end to his ministry, which will end in his execution in a matter of days. And so it's, it's funny to me in verse 29, they're asking about uh, what's the source and the nature of his authority. And it's almost like they're acknowledging it. And Jesus sort of comes to them with total authority, total control. And He's like, all right, kids, I'll play your game, but we're going to play by my rules. And he says to them in verse 29, I will ask you one question, and you will answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So now we see this word authority three times. Within these first few verses, we see the word authority come four times. And Jesus says, I'll answer your question. All you have to do is answer my one question, which was very uh, normal in rabbinic form that they would ask a question and then another question would come back and they would sort of go back and forth like this until they resolved whatever issue it was. And so Jesus is in total control of them. He says, all I need you to do is answer my one question. And, and it seems that they're, they're, they're agreeable to this. And so then in verse 30, 
Jesus asked them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Okay, now this seems like a simple question for us. Um, But for them, this wasn't so simple. And their relationship with John the Baptist wasn't necessarily a good relationship. If you'll turn with me back over to Matthew uh, chapter 3 and verse 7. Now remember, Matthew was sort of this forerunner of Christ. He was proclaiming uh, this this baptism of repentance. He was challenging uh, the sin of the people uh, so that they would prepare their hearts for the Messiah who would come. Uh, we remember that John the Baptist, he also baptized Jesus. And when Jesus came to be baptized by him, he says, I'm not, not worthy to untie your sandals, let, let alone to baptize you. And so the whole ministry of John the Baptist was pointing people to Christ. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, in the midst of all of what I just described, Uh, We read this about John the Baptist. But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath of God? So John the Baptist, when he sees these guys, he confronts them and he calls out their that they're religious nuts, that they're 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 uh, have all of this external attributes, but on the inside. They're dead, and there's, there's no desire to experience Christ in true living relationship with God. And so Jesus knows this about their past relationship with uh, the baptism of John, this baptism of, relation, of, of uh, repentance of sins. And so in verses 31, going back to Mark chapter 11, in verses 31 through 33, this whole scene develops. And the scene that I have is the old television show. I think it's still on TV, but the family feud, you know, that there's the line of the family and uh, the, the, uh, the talk show host will go up to who, the person in the front and they'll ask him a question. And then you see the family all kind of gather around and they sort of go, well, I think this is a good answer. I think that's a good answer. I think, you know, let, let's go with this answer. And so finally the guy will come up and they'll, he'll give the answer, hopefully that he'll get on the, the top response for 100 people or whatever it is. And, and so here's a little family feud scene. Jesus simply asks him the question, what's the source of John the Baptist's baptism? And so they huddle around. They began reasoning amongst themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Because if they say it's from heaven, then that means that they authenticate the ministry of John the Baptist, which was pointing everybody to Jesus as the Messiah. And so they go, that's not a good answer, because if we say that, we're acknowledging that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and so we should bow down to him, and he has ultimate authority over everything. And then in verse 32, they say, but shall we say from men? Now, Mark gives some insight to this response of theirs. Look at what he says. He says, they were afraid to answer... Or they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So John had this huge following. People, people came from all over the region to be baptized by him. He, he disrupted their whole system. And so 
they can't say that he's of men because the, the vast majority of people believe that John the Baptist was a true prophet, the first after 400 years of silence that stepped onto the pages of the New Testament, basically proclaiming the word of God to the people. And so they're in a bind. And so this huge legislative body, this, this team of 70 guys, I don't think it was all 70 of them there, but this group of people who had all of the authority, all of the power, all of everything, the best that they could come up with, we don't know. We're not going to answer anyway. We can't answer that question. And so Jesus says to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus says, okay, I, I can play this game. I told you I'd answer the question. And he's going to answer the question, but in sort of a... Uh, I don't want to say in a passive-aggressive sort of way, but he's going to answer the question in a way that he's answering the question clear as day without directly answering the question. And as we go into chapter 12, verse 1, this, this whole next section, it very much is sort of like the scene in the Old Testament when Nathan confronts David. Remember, David had relations with Bathsheba. He stole this guy's wife, David, this rich, powerful man. And Nathan tells this whole story about, hey, you know, there's a guy out there. He took this little boy's little sheep, and, and you know, this, this owner has thousands of them. And David, being a former shepherd, he gets all, you know, bent out of shape. Like, let's get this guy. Let's kill him. And then at the end of the whole story, Nathan turns and says, this guy is you with Bathsheba. You took this other man's wife. And so, so I say that. Between, and look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Um, I want to sort of explain this as we get into it. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 12, we read, And he began to speak to them in parables. And so parables are a way that you can share uh, spiritual truth and also conceal it so it's not necessarily clear to those that are hearing from the outside. But for those that have the right heart, they can, they can hear it and understand it. And as we skip down to verse 12, so Jesus is speaking to them in parables. We move to the scene. He won't answer them the question about authority. And in verse 1, Mark says, Jesus began to speak in parables. By verse 12, we see, and they, this is this group of individuals, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they were seeking to seize him, that's Jesus, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and they went away. So there was no question. He is answering their question about authority without directly answering their question. By the end of this, they're furious. This, this whole chapter 12 is going to be a series of attacks by these people trying to trip up Jesus, ultimately getting us to the day when they're going to take him into custody and arrest him. You know, it's a... We're in this text. We're leading towards Easter in our present lives. Um, everything is pressing towards the crucifixion, but they can't trip up Jesus. And so back to verse 1. And he began to speak in them in parables. And he's going to tell this parable that it's built upon the foundation of Isaiah chapter 5. Um, if you want to go back, you know, when we're finished here, you can go with your family and you can read through Isaiah 5, the first few verses there. Um, this whole parable is built on this story that Isaiah tells. And so we're told that a man, now the man is father. We're going to, we're going to say the, the, the man is the father being the father in heaven. 
uh, the first person of the Trinity. Uh, he planted a vineyard. Now, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. Um, and he put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. And he rented it out to the vine growers. Now, as we look at the story, uh, the three characters so far, we have the vineyard, that's Israel, a man, that's God the Father, and we have these vine growers that represent the priests and the scribes, the, the religious leaders of Israel. And then we're told after he rents it out to the vine growers, he went on a journey. Now, in a practical sense, when you established a vineyard, you could do all of this work, and it took about four or five years um, to, to have some yield on, on your investment, that uh, before the grapes would begin to grow and, and, and start producing and so we're told that this, the owner, he goes and he takes a journey. In verse 2, um, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. So now this is a legal action. This is um, when you did this and you brought in um, vine growers that managed the land and ran the land. Um, as long as you sent people back, you would have to, at, at some level, on an annual basis, go back, take some of the profits for yourself, even if you just took, say, 10%, and then you left the 90% uh, for the people that are running the land. This was a, a, a legal claim sort of showing that you were still um, an owner of the land, that you still had investment, that you, you hadn't um, run off on it, uh, sort of avoiding sort of squatter rights that they could take over legal ownership of it, that the owner sends a slave to go take some payment, show that it's still his land, show that he still has uh, investment in it, and that he's still concerned about it. And so verse 3, we, we told, we're told that they, they took him, this slave, and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This would send a message. And so again, a man who owns the land, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him. In the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, so number three. And then that one they killed. So they're escalating their force towards the people that he's sending. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. And so now that as the slaves are introduced, this is the sort of the, the fourth character. Uh, that we need to understand in this parable, these, this, this fourth set of characters, these slaves that are sent repeatedly, uh, this is understood as the prophets throughout the Old Testament that God is sending repeatedly to give a word of the Lord to the people of Israel for how they should conduct their lives, how they should live, how they should be a light until the, into the nations around them. Uh, if you'll turn with me over to Acts, so we're going to kind of move forward in the story of, of the gospel. And over in Acts chapter Seven is the great story of uh, really the first martyr that we see in the New Testament. And, and so if you read through Acts chapter 7, you can do this with your families afterwards or by yourself afterwards. Um, it's a long chapter. And as we come to uh, verse 51, this is where we'll pick up the story. So Stephen, he's under attack uh, by these people. He rehashes Basically, in the, the first part of chapter 7, it's this, this whole rehashing of Israel's history, talking about their fathers and the prophets and all of the things that God has done. And as he gets to sort of the crescendo of his sermon, 
What we read in verse 51, he says, You men who are stiff-necked, they're stubborn, uncircumcised in heart, meaning that they had done all of the external things, but in their heart, they haven't received the power of God within their hearts to understand what God wants. And ears that are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets or slaves in the parable of Jesus did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at them. And there's this surge of this people to Stephen and they stone him and they kill him. And what Stephen is telling them is the same thing back in Mark. If you want to go back to Mark chapter 12, it's the same thing, the same message that Jesus is saying concerning these slaves. Verse 5, and he sent another slave, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, this is the same exact message that Stephen gave before he was killed. Now, verse 6, Jesus starts talking. He had one more to send. So the, the, the man who owns the vineyard has one more option of who he can send to these vine growers. Even in this story, this man seems so gracious. This isn't how I would respond to these people. I'd grab all my buddies, go down there with some guns, and basically take care of business. You know, in the very uh, in my reality of how I'd want to handle something that did this, that hurt and killed and did all of these things, I would go very aggressively. But in the story that Jesus tells, we see a gracious God that is so kind and so loving and so gentle towards these people who are sinning against Him. So, verse six, He had one more to send. A beloved son. Character, if I'm counting right, so one, two, three, four. Number five, the fifth character. Now we have this son. This son is Jesus. This beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So that's the parable. Now, as we go to verse 9, Jesus is going to continue his questioning, really answering the question about authority, right? Who's in this story? Who has the authority? The, the man who's the father, who's the owner of it, he's the one who has authority. These Vine growers who represent the priests and the scribes, they are stewards of the land, meaning that they're managing something that's not theirs. They have a responsibility to do certain things, but they're not the rightful owners. And so Jesus asks the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, the owner of the vineyard is now going to take the path that Gunner said he would do after like probably the second or third slave. Jesus says he will come and he will destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Doesn't this sound familiar to the parable of the fig tree? Jesus goes to the temple. 
on the way there. He sees this fig tree that sort of gives this display like it's doing good things, but when he gets there, there's no fruit in its life. And so he curses it that it would never have fruit. He goes to the temple. He throws the chairs. He, he kicks over the tables. He stops all of the stuff that was happening that wasn't supposed to be happening. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. This is my father's house. And now when he comes back, he's confronted by those that were supposed to be managing this temple, this place of God's residence. And he tells this parable about a vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. By the time we get to verse 12, they know exactly what he was saying to them. He's warning them of the destruction that was to come in A.D. 70 when Jesus says, you know, he foretold that the the temple would be destroyed. In A.D. 70 it was, turned brick by brick, so the gold that was inlaid in there would be taken by the Romans. And so in verse 10, he goes to Scripture, the ultimate authority. He says, have you not read the Scripture? And what he's going to read is he's going to read or quote, really, from Psalm 118. And I would encourage you that today when we end here, that you would open your Bibles with your families or by yourself or whoever you're with and read Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is known to be a Passover psalm, that they were, they were there celebrating the Passover. Um, this was a psalm that they would have sung, they would have celebrated, they would have, it would have been a part of their whole week celebrating the Passover. And he says, haven't you read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. So so this is Psalm 118 verse 22. He quotes this verse to them saying, this has been foretold. Haven't you read the psalm that you're singing all week long and you're missing the very thing that you're Singing and saying and, and, and considering throughout this week. This verse would become uh, uh, the cornerstone of the New Testament. Many of the writers, as we go to, uh, well, let's just, um, let's look at a few. Um, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Um, after Jesus' execution, which would be coming days, he would r- rise from the dead And then he would later ascend. After the ascension and the coming of the Spirit, the church explodes. Um, The the apostles heal a man. um, And these same religious authorities are basically trying to stop this movement that Jesus started. They, They thought if they'd killed him, it would end everything. And Peter, as he's confronted by these people, again... In Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By this name, this man stands before you in good health. He says, if you're going to persecute us, if you're going to condemn us, let's be clear about what you're persecuting us for. It's not because this man is healed. It's because of the name of Jesus. And then he says, quoting from Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone 
and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Moving forward in the historical context of the early church, Paul then writes Ephesians, this great, wonderful letter. I think it's my favorite book in the whole Bible. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, there Paul writes, For through him we have both our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And here it is, what he references. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, so Paul later, when he looks at the foundation of the church in this great letter of Ephesians that lays out the framework of what the church is, he says it's all based on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. He is the jugular vein of, of Christianity. You don't take out Jesus. You don't take out the cross. All of that is the gospel by which everything is built upon. Later, Peter again would write at the, nearing the end of his life in First Peter, as the church would then experience great persecution, and they're trying to deal with the persecution that they're experiencing. And I have to pause and say what we're dealing with, not meeting in church, like not having corporate worship services, this is not religious persecution. We are not being persecuted. This is something that is globally being done trying to stop this pandemic. There are Christians in the midst of this around the world, in Russia, in China, in various parts of the world that are truly being persecuted for carrying the name of Christ. So we need to be careful not to take this on as persecution because we are not being persecuted for the name of Christ. We are not meeting because it's being the whole nation, all the businesses. I think of bars and restaurants and these other things that are being shut down. This is, this is something that all of us as a community are experiencing. But Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he again dealing with true persecution and this idea that chief uh, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone he writes therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babies long for pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the lord and i think that there's something beautiful about our not meeting right now there's something beautiful about the, the, sh the churches around the world effectively being shut down and pastors like me being forced into this new medium to, to try to, to get out the gospel, trying to continue to teach our body in this form, is that we're sort of uh, stripping away things. Um, we're coming back to the basics. And at the basics, what Peter says here, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, Begin to grow in respect to salvation. Put Christ as a priority in your life. You know, suddenly, for, for all my young life, going to church was punishment. I didn't want to do it at all. Now, suddenly, I can't go to church, and I want nothing more than to, to be in fellowship with you all and, and, and the body of believers that make up Grace Point Church. 
And I think all of us are feeling that. And so I think we'll reprioritize what we think is important after we get through this. Now, getting back to verse 4, he says, And coming to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but also for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. And so when we look at this, I covered verse 12 earlier. When Jesus gets this verse, have you not read in scripture? The, the question that I always have when preaching is I, is I ask myself the question, so, so what does this all mean? Like, so what? Like, what's the purpose of this? Um, this story we're entering in is of the Passion Week. We find ourselves, two, like literally two weeks from today is Easter. Normally it's the highest church attendance day worldwide because people come out for church on Easter. And I believe that this coming Easter, I don't think that we'll have church and I don't think that churches across our country will be having church yet. And so it will literally be the lowest attended church Sunday, I don't want to say in human history, I don't want to go that far, but, but maybe. And yet I think that the hearts of humanity most likely will be most ready to actually receive the good news of Christ on this particular Easter when there are not going to be churches available to go to. The question when I look at this is how... How have we responded to the kindness of the Lord? Because so, in all this story, Jesus is giving a warning. The whole destruction of the fig tree was a warning. This was his mercies so that those would hear the story, those that would see this, they would have an opportunity to respond in their hearts. And have you responded to his kindness or have you rejected his kindness? It's funny, in Luke's account of this very same story, in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, right in the midst of this, right before the religious leaders storm out of the room, all mad at Jesus, come, trying to come up with another plan to kill him. What Luke says, commentating on this verse that he quotes from in Psalm 118, he says, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. That's a good thing. So if you've been confronted by the gospel that basically says you're a sinner, we all are sinners, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And you reach the point where you're just sick of your sin. And then you come to Jesus and you fall upon him, the rock. There's nothing better than being broken like that. And we're told that if you come to Jesus in that manner, you'll be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, those that reject and those that don't respond, it will scatter him like dust. And this is damnation. This is the warning. We're all going to be broken by Jesus, either to salvation or to damnation. And the decision really lies with you. Kent Hughes on this, he says that this, the choice is just as dramatic today as are the consequences. 
His plea is just as eloquent and poignant. Let us by prayer and example encourage others to choose Christ as and life indeed. So right now our lives have, have effectively been stripped away of, of many freedoms that we enjoy, many uh, things that we just do day in and day out that we don't even think about. Like right now you're supposed to be locked in your home unless you're out for grocery shopping, going to the doctor, or working in, in, in a workplace that you have to be there. And so as we're faced with this reality, I think we're forced to consider what things do we really value? It's crazy to me, and I think all of us are in agreement that three weeks ago, the idea that, that the whole nation would come to a standstill was unthinkable. And here we are, realizing, actually knowing that the only thing that we have for certainty in this life is Christ and what he's done for us. I think this has given us a a tremendous opportunity to hit the reset button in our life, to restart the computer and to say, you know what, when I come out of this, what are going to be my priorities? Spending time with our families and and, uh, realizing what we actually long for. I... I, I keep asking myself as I read this passage and seeing them trying to answer Jesus, you know, they were reasoning, trying to figure out how they could get around it, seeing the, um, the vine growers reasoning for excuses or ways that they could uh, get the land. How many times have I reasoned that it was okay to put Christ in the backseat of my life to not really do the things that he wants to do? And so my prayer in my life is that I would from this begin to put Christ first in my life all the time, that I would calibrate my life to the scriptures and the desires of his heart. The other thing that you that you were confronted with with this vineyard is the reality that we're just merely stewards of our life. This this life that I have, my gifts, my talents, the resources, they're all God's. And I have a responsibility to to be a manager of the things that he's entrusted me with. And so my prayer for me is that Lord would help me to be a better steward of, of this life that he's trusted me with. And I pray that you would come to the reality that your life is the same as my life, that God has given you certain talents and gifts and, and a certain amount of days on this earth, and that he wants you to be a good steward of those things. Earlier, Don and Isaac sang a song called Heal Our Land. Uh, Christina, Don's wife, um, her dad wrote the song, and earlier this week she um, she sh- she shared on I think it was on, on Facebook, but it was a YouTube video or something of the audio of the song, and the, the song is really pretty. And um, Rachel, for those of you that know Rachel, I've I've asked her permission to share this, but she had, she had commented under the song, and what Rachel said was was beautiful like she wrote a really long thing i'm only going to read the last two paragraphs but what she said i think so ties into this this idea of stewardship and what are we doing for christ how are we living our life and she says about the song i'm quoting rachel it was lovely hearing dawn sing was so comforting i could fear tears welling up in my eyes it made me long for church Hearing Don, Don sing reminded me of church. I just want to go to church and hear the band play and to hear Gunnar preach. 
and watch the Hanson boys squirm around in front of me. My boys are a little bit crazy, and they sit right in front of her, so that's all true. Uh, it made me sorrowful and regretful for every time I chose to sleep in and miss church. I had to repent. I did not appreciate what a gift it is to be able to go to church. I am never again going to take it for granted. And I think that as things have been stripped away from us, we start realizing how precious they are and what a gift we have to be stewards of the resources that God has given us. Um, Truly will be sweet the next time we can gather together and worship corporately as a body. This week I read a blog by Dr. Al Mohler concerning the, the command to shelter in place. And I'm going to end with his words. Uh, he said, I'm reminded of a song that I learned as a little boy in my home church. I remember singing it together with the congregation, holding hands across the aisles. The song ended with these words. God be, we, God be with us till we meet again. Indeed, that must be the prayer of every congregation today. So let's pray, and may God be with you until we meet again. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the convicting truths that are found in the story. We thank you for the reality that Christ is indeed Lord and that he holds ultimate authority. Father, we pray for those that don't know you as Savior that they would come to understand and answer the questions that they have about who Jesus is, that they would understand grace and that we're saved by it through faith. Father, I pray for those of us that know Jesus. And as we look at the story of these, these vine growers that were supposed to be managing the owner's land, Father, I pray that you would help us to truly take the responsibility of stewardship seriously within our lives, the the, the gifts that we've been given, the financial resources we have, uh, how we interact with one another. Father, may we yield our lives to you in all that we say, do, and think. Lord, help us to calibrate our lives according to your scriptures. I pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. We'll see you next week.